0: Amen. We've been in Hebrews chapter 11. This is, what, the third or fourth week. Um, and I was telling Richard before the service, because uh, last week we went through three verses. We're going to go through three more today. I, I originally had the study laid out to go from verse 20 through verse 31 in Hebrews. I had a whole different title and just as I studied and as I prepared, the Lord just moved on my heart and ended up with way more information than I could do teaching that much. I ended up kind of restructuring the whole thing. So just looking at now the patriarchs. Last week we looked at Abraham and we looked at his faith being tested on purpose where God had laid out the promise there in Genesis 21. Uh, when he said, through your seed, through Isaac specifically, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then in chapter 22, he says, hey, Abraham, I want you to kill your son. And, and and I know that's kind of bluntly stating it, but he said, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And I want you to take him out. I'll show you where to go and all of that. And and, and the, what we saw in that was that God laid out the promise And then came the challenge, and that's what happens in our lives. He says, look, here's the promise, and we live, I'll tell you, by faith we live under the promises of God, every one of us, and and yet we come into areas in our lives where we're challenged to, Lord, am I going to believe you for that, or am I going to try to go my own way, or try to figure it out myself, and try to do this whole end run on you, or am I going to simply rest? by faith in the fact that you've got this. And so there's the promise and then the command. And, and it's to us to obey the command and trust God for the promise. This is essentially what the bottom line from last week's study was. And so we looked at that, and we're looking at this thing called faith. And we're not talking about blind faith. We're not talking about faith in faith or, or faith in some object that is not consistent with the gospel and with the word of God because As we've talked about before, there's always an object to faith. If you have your faith that God is a doorknob or a rock, then that's not going to get you very far. But if your faith, the object of your faith is Jesus himself, the one who died for you on a cross, rose from the dead to give you power, not only power for this life, but everlasting life, well, then that's substance, to your faith—that's that—he's the substance of the things we hope for. That's what it says in 1 right? Talking about Christ. So, it's not blind faith. It's not based in emotions. It's it's an intelligent faith. It's an informed faith that we are talking about here. Uh, and, and as we look today at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the writer has a specific point. Yeah, he reaches all the way back to Genesis. And yet remember who he's talking to. Know your audience. You know, there's that old saying, know your audience. Well, he knows his audience is a bunch of Christians who had been Jews that were struggling. They were going through lots of trials. They were endeavoring to walk by sight, and it doesn't work that way anymore. We've talked about that at length. In in the old covenant, it was all the externals, all the visuals, all the stuff. And, And he says, no, 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 no. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is by faith. It's entrusting something, someone you can't see. And so they were discouraged. They were struggling. They were going through a lot of trials. And he's writing this to encourage them. And what he's going to be showing them through this passage is these guys, is one thing that's a common thread with all three of these people, with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, is each one of these, he is talking about men who are at or near the end of their life. And, and, and there's great encouragement for us, not that all of us are at or near the end of our lives, uh, and yet we don't know what tomorrow holds. And I know as I get older, passages like this get more important to me. And yet all of us, our days are numbered. And he knows that day. He knows that time. And and what these guys' emphasis was on, the reason why this is called faith looking forward, is they get to the end of their days and they're looking forward. They're not inheriting the promises, but they're still living in them. They're still living, believing in God, believing that God has set these promises in, in motion. And so, the other thing about this is these guys, all three of these guys that we're looking at, none of them were perfect. I mean, you look at Isaac's life, you look at Jacob's life, Jacob especially, I connect with Jake, Jacob, uh, they, they, they failed at times. They failed miserably at times. But it didn't change God's faithfulness to them. That God is ultimately, utterly faithful, even when we are faithless. And I'm, comforted by that i know that uh, i'm not alone that sometimes i struggle and sometimes i go through things and i'm not talking about abject sin i'm just talking about daily life uh, my friend likes to say i'm filled with the holy spirit but i leak and and, and 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 we do we leak i mean sometimes we just automatically we forget that these things exist and we just go powering off on our own but god is faithful And he reels us in gently, and he brings us to this place of reminding us that his promises are sturdy and sure and real in our lives. That's what the writer wants to get across to the Hebrew Christians in the first century. And by way of application, that's what God wants to accomplish in us. So we look at these guys, we look at the power of faith at the end of life with each of these guys. And again... Sometimes we just I sometimes it amounts to we're stumbling through life. We're not always walking closely. We're not always having our priorities aligned with God. And yet again, we that's why it's salvation by grace through faith. That it's God's unmerited favor. I am not earning brownie points with God through my obedience. My obedience is a response to the grace that's been poured out. So, uh, uh, these guys are facing death. Their perspective changes. I know that uh, I remember one time, about three years ago, I got a call from a friend uh, who was part of a church where I had been teaching, and and, and she was absolutely hysterical. Her, her name was Claudia, and and she said, my daughter has been diagnosed with cancer, and she's pregnant. And because of the hormones in her body, the cancer accelerated and there was no hope for her unless God intervened miraculously. And they offered her, look, we can terminate your pregnancy to keep you alive and give you heavy chemotherapy drugs. And she said, no, I want my baby to live, even if that costs me my life. And and so her mother, when, when she called, we were traveling from here down to Northern California and, and just frantic and, and, and just pleading for prayer for her daughter and for her unborn grandchild. And, and, and her perspective in that moment changed. I remember speaking with her, and, and Mary Susan was the gal. She'd been to our church, and, and God had touched her heart, and uh, she and her husband and, and all of that. And, and as Mary Susan was in the hospital and her mother went to visit her, she said, Mary Susan, I have to know. I have to know where you're at with God where you're at with the gospel where you're at with Jesus Christ and and Mary Susan on her deathbed said mom don't don't worry i've i've covered that I, i've made my peace with god through the cross and through jesus and and mom it, it'll be okay and and she delivered her baby who's alive now is looking at pictures of her last night as they're preparing this and, and and then she went to be with the lord hardest memorial service i ever did uh just the, the tragedy of it, and yet knowing that her mother's perspective changed in that moment from going on with life, every day we look at is going to be like the last, and the the next day, and all of that, and, and it was like this whole thing came up, and she had to know more than anything else, and of course she longed for her daughter to, to, to live and all of that, of course. She had to know. What was going to happen with her daughter when she crossed over? These guys, the the writer in the book of Hebrews is, is bringing that up to, again, these struggling Christians, they're going through all kinds of stuff, and he's saying, look, you may not inherit the promises. You may not get there. You may not see a resolution to the struggles that you're going through. You may die, but it's not going to stop God or his promises from going forth. And folks, many of us, we may not see the fulfillment of God's promises until we get there. Because when we talk about hope, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about eternity, those are promises that we have. And we do well to hold on to the promise knowing that barring the Lord catching us up together with Him in the air through the rapture or uh, all of that, that we will go through the end of this life and not realize those promises until we get there. So that's what these guys, that's what the writer is wanting to convey with these guys. All three of them are near death. and He highlights the faith they exhibited when they came to the end of their lives because faith looks forward. They didn't see the end of their earthly life as that's it. That's where it stops. They were concerned about their descendants, and they also knew that there was more on the other side. So if we look at at the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, they're the direct descendants of Abraham. There was Abraham and then his son Isaac. Remember, there was um, Ishmael, uh, the child born outside of the promise, and we looked at that last week. But Isaac was a child of the promise, and so there's Isaac, And then Isaac's son is Jacob, but he had an older brother named Esau. We'll look at that this morning. And then Jacob, who was the younger brother, but he inherited the birthright. He actually tricked his brother out of it. Uh, he had 12 sons, and they became the 12 sons of Israel. His name was changed there at the Brook Jabok. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel, from conniver, heel grabber, to governed by God, that's a significant change. And and, and there, the the whole story shifts. Now, we're going to look at these guys, again, at the end of their life. But God had made a promise, a covenant to Abraham. Three things about that covenant. First, he, he said, your descendants would possess the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. You hear about the promised land in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It was an area, and it's where present day Israel is. Well, part of it. Uh, Israel's never taken all of the land that God gave them, but, uh, oh, I'm not gonna rabbit trail on that. Um, I could easily. So anyway, uh, he said that, your descendants will possess the land. I have a special land for you. We looked at last week, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They dwelt in the land in tents. They never owned property. The only property that Abraham ever owned was where he would be buried because he didn't want to go back to Ur of the Chaldees where he was born. he That wasn't home anymore. This is home. Even though they never took possession of the land. That was his point. They died without that promise being fulfilled. 500 years after God gave the promise, Israel would come back into the land and actually possess it. So he said, you're going to have, your descendants are going to possess this land. The second thing he says is they will become a great nation. Uh, Here we have 12 sons. Well, we have Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons, the great grandsons of Abraham. They go down to Egypt and they multiply over 400 years to where Probably a million and a half of them come out in the Exodus, and they become a great nation. And so he promised that. The third thing is that they would be a blessing to the entire world. Through your seed, not seeds, but through your seed, your ancestor, or through your descendants the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so those three things were part of the promise that God had made to Abraham, and these guys were being sure that as they were passing off the scene, that their descendants got it. So that's what he's talking about here. When they died, those promises weren't fulfilled, and they were passing them on to future generations. So the point is that those promises wouldn't be fulfilled in their lifetime, but each was certain that God would fulfill them we do well to understand that we may or may not see aspects of God's promises in our lives fulfilled, but to walk by faith, being assured that God will do it. So in Hebrews 11.20, that's where we're going to start. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So here's Isaac at the end of his life. Uh, and, and what he's saying is in regard to the things that would take place in the future. Now, interesting uh, statistics here. There are twelve chapters in Genesis where Abraham is the focus. There are twelve chapters in Genesis where Jacob, his son, his grandson, is the the focus. There are twelve chapters in Genesis where Joseph, his great grandson, is the focus. For Isaac, there are about two and a half chapters. There's not a great deal mentioned about Isaac, And, and. we don't know we know that he had times where he was essentially faithless but we also know that he did exercise faith remember he trusted his father's servant to find him a wife the servant goes out he gets he finds rebecca brings her back and and so abraham or i mean isaac is essentially exercising faith that god would provide a wife for him and he uses his servant to do it so then further rebecca was barren and Isaac seeks the Lord on her behalf he intercedes for her and 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 he says lord we need a baby and and 20 years later she has the kids. she has the boys and so uh, he he seeks the lord and Esau and Jacob are born they're a result of his walking by faith trusting god to open her womb so we're told here that Isaac, in the text, it says that he loved Esau and he favored Esau over Jacob. Uh, After their birth, in Genesis 25, it says, so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I look at that, it kind of makes me laugh. I think about... Uh, how things are passed on from the parents. I mean, it's clear that Isaac, you could look at him and say he has some food issues uh, because he likes his son because his son's a good cook. And, and he's out, you know, he's a kind of a manly man and all of that. And, and he prefers him over Jacob. Now, we'll see as we go along that Rebecca, his wife, She's a pretty manipulative lady, and she's conniving. And again, I look at Jacob's character, and he's a chip off the o The apple didn't fall far from the tree with either of these boys. Esau, like his father, had some food issues. Remember, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And here's Jacob, heel grabber, conniver, the one who... Man, he knew how to work it. We would call him a con man. And his mom... Uh, something else I I draw great comfort from these passages we know that as I mentioned these people are not perfect they're not like these upstanding members this is one dysfunctional family I mean they are they're they're like the epitome of dysfunctionality they're working it with each other they're they're lying, they're cheating, they're, they're conniving they're doing all this stuff and somehow God is working His purposes through it. It's just amazing to me that the thread of faith runs through these people. <laughs> Again, not that it, you look at Romans. Essentially, the people had asked the Apostle Paul, "Well, in view of God's grace, can we sin?" And and he said, "God forbid! May it never be." Uh, where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And no, it's not. You don't get saved by God's grace and then figure, well, since I've got it covered, I can just go live for myself. Uh, that's silliness. So the point in this is that Isaac, he at times had a marginal faith, but he still was counted faithful in this chapter. Uh Rebecca, she's, you know, kind of got her issues and uh the the son's character, one if we looked at it in today's in today's society, one would be like he's a construction worker and a football fanatic, okay? You know, Esau, he's like this "Ah, rough and tough guy. The other son, it's like he works in an office and he likes Broadway plays. You know, he's just kind of the opposite. These boys are way different from each other. The point is, is that both of them had a role in this, and Isaac is going to bless. In Genesis 21 and 26, God's speaks to Isaac saying that the covenant promises to Abraham were going to be given to his seed uh, as messed up as his family was God was going to do what he's going to do he'd revealed to Rebekah the destiny of her two sons he said the younger or the older would serve the younger in other words it's not going to be the typical lineage where you know the 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 oldest child takes the blessing and the birthright and all that both of those. Jacob got a hold of, uh, through some very dubious means, uh, and the, it's proof to me that it's not gonna always be by birthright, not gonna be, always be by physical lineage, uh, in that. So, and, these guys, these boys, even in her if you read in Genesis, and, and the reason why I don't have all these scriptures up, we're covering a lot of ground in Genesis this morning. Usually I put slides up, but um Richard said, Boy, this is gonna be easy. I've got three verses to put on the screen. Yeah, because I, I this is so much. I have to summarize this stuff. I'm not gonna go into the direct uh scriptures themselves, but but if you read the account, it says that Jacob and Esau, they were even warring in her womb you know she was she was aware of the fact that there was some kind of strife between these boys before they were born and throughout their lives that would be proved out in a number of ways so we look at this further on esau comes in from hunting and jacob's there and and he says i'm hungry and jacob's got some lentil stew going some soup or whatever and uh, he essentially trades off his birthright being the firstborn, he trades it off for a bowl of soup. Jacob kind of hustles him there. You want some soup? Give me your birthright. But the text is really indicative there. It says that Jake, or that Esau despised his birthright. Oh, what do I need that for? Yeah, it's not a big deal. No big deal. Yeah, I'm hungry. And very short-sighted, and yet his, and his brother capitalizes on it. So, Now when you look at the birthright, this is really, really important in those days. It's not so much in our culture where the oldest child is kind of like, they're just the bossy one. I have older brother, older sister, and they were kind of bossy. Uh, but I was the baby, so anyway, I'm not gonna go there. The point is, is that when they were blessed, when there was, and there was a birthright and there's a blessing, the birthright was the oldest son. And he would be the one uh, who would get a double portion of the inheritance. He would be considered to be the head of the family, the spiritual and the physical head of the family. And, and looking down through the ages, that through the blessing that was connected to that, is that Messiah would come through the firstborn and that God would be accomplishing his purposes, yes, in their lives, but God is always working far ahead of us. And and through these men, through their line, through their lineage, through their descendants, Messiah would come. And we'll see how that works, because uh, it's not a straight line in, in these accounts. So in Genesis 27... Uh, Isaac's old, he's thinking that his death is near, and he calls out for Esau. He says, go out and hunt and make my favorite meal, and once you've done that, I'm gonna bless you. Esau. Fascinating. Uh, Rebecca, now Rebecca, their mom, Esau and Jacob's mom, was listening. <laughs> and she goes to Jacob, and, and, and she essentially is deciding that she's gonna help God out. Uh, she makes up Isaac's favorite dish. She and she sends it in with Jacob. Now Jacob says, "Well, you know, my brother is red and hairy, and, and I'm a smooth-skinned guy. And so she has him kill a couple of goats, and she actually takes the skin from the goats. And I don't know, she taped it or glued it or whatever, but she attaches it to his arms to where the, he's got these really hairy arms. And I, the visuals on this—just bear with me, because like I'm like, how could you dupe your? I mean, that's." Anyway, that's what it says, so we're going to go with it. Anyway, so he goes in and his dad, it says that his dad smells him and he feels, oh yeah. He says, it's Jacob's voice, but it's Esau, I know, I see that. And and, and so Jacob ends up getting the blessing and right after he's done, Esau comes in and Esau's not happy. As a matter of fact, Esau is furious. He would begin to plot and scheme to kill his brother from this point forward. And in Genesis 27, verses 38 through 40, we read this. And Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, oh my father. Now this is right after Jacob left with the blessing. Uh, And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now we're gonna look at that in chapter 12 because it says that Esau sought for repentance with tears, but none was found. We'll talk about that. I'm excited about that because it connects back to this. Verse 39 says, Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling... Now, this is where Isaac blesses Esau, but he gives him a lesser blessing. Okay, He says, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. Sounds good. By your sword you shall live, you'll be a warrior type, and you shall serve your brother. Oh, didn't like that and it shall come to pass that when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck and he did. Esau ended up moving away. Uh, Jacob went off to uh, be with his his mom's brother, his uncle Laban, and that's where his wives would, Leah and Rachel would come from and don't have it's not pertinent to the story here but Esau would go off to uh, a land that was to the southeast. Uh, We would call it Jordan and northern Saudi Arabia now. And it became the, the land of Edom. Edom means red. Okay, so it's a land. The Edomites would be a snare to Israel going forward. If you go through, you look at the Exodus when they're wandering around in the, in the wilderness and all of the stuff that's going on there, the Edom would not be friendly towards the people of God, towards Israel uh, going forward. So he did break away, and he lived outside of the land of promise. And Jacob, after he was on the run from Esau for, what, 20 years... Went back to their land of promise when God told them to. So, but I want you to think here. Everyone's actions here, every one of them, uh, they were dishonoring to God. Again, this is a messed up family. Uh, Isaac, (laughs) and yet God is working his purposes through it. Isaac looks at this and he blesses his sons. And, 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 It's an act of faith, according to the writer in Hebrews, even though we look at it and go, oh my goodness, look at all of the interplay that's going on here. Why? Two things. The first is Isaac's trusting that God would continue his promises through his son. Remember, Isaac has been told that that's going to happen. So realizing he'd been, even though he, he knew he'd been duped, Uh, and, and, And all of that, but he still realizes that God's promises are God's promises, period. That's why he refuses to withdraw the blessing from Jacob and now give it back to Esau. Even though he favored Esau, he trusted God more than he favored his son. You get it? Understand? So that's where the integrity comes in in isaac's actions and that's what the writer's bringing out here we just kind of have to color in the backstory so that we understand what's being said here in hebrews remember we've only gone through one verse um, i know i that's why i shortened this from 11 verses to three because it's like there's just so much here lord but he trusted essentially that god had set it up for jacob to be blessed And and you got to realize, and it doesn't say so in any of the accounts in Genesis, but you got to realize that that his wife, that Rebecca, must have been talking to him when she found out that you know uh, the older is going to serve the younger, and because she was told that, and and when she had that, she you got to you got to think that maybe just maybe she had some influence on his decisions, because. I mean, she's his wife for one thing, and for another thing, he ends up going the direction that she wanted to see things go. The bottom line is, is that Isaac trusts God, and he wants to be sure that God's promises are ensured for generations to come. He wants to be sure that Abraham's covenant is transferred to the people to whom he had said it would be transferred to. And so what does that take? Faith. He has to trust God. He has to believe God in order for that to come about. And so, again, the writer saying, by faith, Isaac blessed his sons. And yeah, exactly. Even though there was this whole mess going on in their family, the bottom line was the right guy got blessed. The right guy got the birthright, and God fulfilled his promises to them. Isaac's at the end of his life, and he wants to be sure that these guys carry the promises of God, the promises to Abraham forward. The second is that God chose Abraham and promised to bless all the nations of the earth, not just his literal descendants. Remember, in, in Galatians chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 9, they state that we as Christians, if you're a Christian, that you're part of the spiritual family of Abraham. Abraham's our father, and we are heirs to the same promises that Jacob inherited and on down the line. Because again, especially in Galatians, I love the way he words that. He doesn't say the seeds of Abraham physically. He says, we are the seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed that we are part of. If you have come to Christ and given your life to him, that you're adopted into God's family and you become the spiritual descendants, the spiritual, the people that God is referencing when he says through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the seed of Abraham. And that's us. And the writer wants to make sure that these guys understand in the first century, that's you. And we, 2,000 years later, can look at that and say, that's me. So the second time that Isaac blessed Jacob uh, is in Genesis 28. And this is what he says. He says, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So here's the covenant being transferred. Here's the promise being transferred to the son. All right? That's the writer's point. Isaac would not inherit the promises. But Isaac is walking by faith. Isaac would not see, excuse me, the land that God promised to his father. And yet that didn't stop him from understanding that God's promises are sure and real and sturdy and that they could bank on it. These guys in the first century, they're not seeing it. They're going through all kinds of horrible things, having their property seized, uh, seeing their loved ones killed at, at times, and especially as, as the years went on and as Rome got more hostile towards Israel and up until 66 when they did the whole siege for four years and all that. I mean, things were getting rough. And so what the writer's doing is he's encouraging them, saying, look, you may not see it. You may not get the fulfillment in this life. That doesn't change the fact that God's in control and that God is going to fulfill his promises. He will do it. And folks, we go through things. We go through a lot at times. We go through painful things at times. And yet there is such value in understanding that my life is hidden in Christ. And that when I don't understand what I'm seeing, when I don't understand what's going on around me, when I don't understand what God's doing, and when I'm tempted to question and say, what is going on? That like Isaac, I can say, you know what? I know that you're in control. I know that you have this. And by faith, I'm going to stand on your promises. I will not relent and allow my circumstances to rule over me to the exception of believing you. Good advice from God's word, folks. So the bottom line, the question is, why is Isaac counted faithful in Hebrews 11? And the answer is simple. It's because he trusted God will fulfill the promises to Abraham in his own way, in his own time, regarding his two sons. And he just trusted God. So, And God commended him for his faith. That's encouraging to me. With the dysfunctionality we talked about, with seeing the goofiness that these guys were doing all their stuff, and yet God was still God, and he was still going to accomplish his purposes through them. We exercise faith, and, and yet our faith is always by the grace of God. And God credits that to our account. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, and leaning on the top of his staff. So looking at Jacob's life now, uh, many times he wasn't a faithful guy. Remember, conniver, he was always working it, he was always uh, you know, working an angle. I look at the, I love the story, I'm not going to go into it about, you know, he thinks he's marrying Rachel and he gets Leah and she's like the only person in the Bible that it's called ugly. And, you know, he wakes up in the morning, he's like, ah! You know, and, and it takes him seven more years to get the good-looking one. I mean, I love that story. We're not going to go there. So, um, anyway, so looking at Jacob's life, he, he's not always a faithful guy. And yet God is, through the inspiration of the Spirit, inspiring the writer to Hebrews to talk about his faith. I want you to understand something. What God is, what the emphasis that God has in this and the emphasis He has in our life is He doesn't take these guys' failures and run them up the flagpole and parade them around. He doesn't talk about failures, He talks about faithfulness. And I love that. That's because He's a gracious, merciful, compassionate, long-suffering God with us and with them. So he Jacob, it's remarkable to me, if we were going to do it on the basis of performance, that Jacob's even mentioned here in the great hall of faith, in this, this faith chapter. Uh, and yet, knowing that I've struggled, I've had ups and downs in my life, uh, I, again, I connect with Jacob. I, I see this is just real stuff. This isn't, you know, highfalutin religiosity, you know, it's like, well, God's good and we're good and he's going to pat us on the head and tell us how good we are and all that. No, 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 no. This is real life. This is meat and potato stuff. These are real people that have real struggles and real issues in their life. And God loved them. And he poured out his grace on them. And he counted them faithful. Looking at Jacob in Genesis 49. Jacob, now he's he's in Egypt he's near the end of his life, he's 147 years old, he's near death, and he pronounces a blessing and prophesies over all his 12 sons there. In Genesis 49, you can read it, I read through it a couple of times preparing for this and just got blessed in seeing the, the God's plan and his providence coming through those pages. And yet right before that, in Genesis 48, there are some interesting things that happen. Joseph, his youngest son, comes in privately to his dad, and he has his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he says, Dad, I want you to bless my boys. Now, there's some, just some interesting things that go on here. Remember, the birthright got swapped with he and his brother, with Jacob and his brother, Esau, and, and, so, Joseph gets in there and he he guides Manasseh to Jacob's right hand and he guides Ephraim to his left hand because the right hand was the where the the birthright would be would be transferred. Now what had happened was Reuben the oldest son had washed out. He when when Jacob blesses all 12 of his sons, he doesn't have a lot of good things to say about Reuben. This is, you know, Ruben, you're all over the place. And that plus you slept with, uh, my concubine, Bill Ha, we go into all that. In other words, he, he, he was just, he was not a strong character guy. And so he was in line to get the birthright, but he got bypassed. And then the next two sons were bypassed as well. That left the legal rights to the birthright, to the fourth son. Guess who that was? Judah. And who, where, what line does Messiah come from? Judah. So we see that, and it's sort of through the back door that Messiah is in the lineage from Abraham. And, 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 and again, I could just get off and go down that road, but I want to stay focused here on Jacob. So what happened then was Joseph knew He knew the family history. He knew the the failures that had gone on with his brothers and all of that. So he comes in with his two sons, and he says, Dad, I want you to bless my boys. And and, and so he wants to begin with the oldest. And and so what's interesting is Jacob, again, he's near death. He's at the end of the, the line. He's near he 's about to cross over his eyesight is really bad, and he doesn 't initially know what 's going on he 's like uh, who's this what are you saying okay you know and you just picture a really really old guy that you know he 's maybe a little bit out of it and he 's like "What are you doing oh okay yeah sure okay yeah bring your boys here and all that and and so joseph does Joseph goes down on his face and and, and you know he 's in an, a a prostate prostrate. <laughs> I've got that mixed up with prostate. I <laughs> don't want to do that. Anyway, do see how slowly I said that? Anyway, so he's prostrate there on the ground and <laughs> Jacob switches his arms. And and, and Joseph comes up and, and he's looking and he says, what are you doing? Uh, he he and, and by this time, Jacob is blessing the boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, but he's putting the emphasis on Ephraim and Not so much Manasseh. I can't imagine. It doesn't say what the boys looks were. They're probably looking at each other like, what are you doing, Grandpa? You know, what's happening here? And yet the older son, Joseph tries to stop him. Jacob won't have it. He says, no, I got this. I know what I'm doing. Manasseh, the older son, will serve Ephraim the younger. And that's what he says. The point is Jacob was believing this was God's plan for these two boys, these two sons. And he actually goes and he when he speaks to them, when he speaks the blessing, he incorporates them and he says, the rest of your sons, Joseph, will be your sons, but these are now mine. And he brings them to equal status with his other sons, even though they're grandsons. This is a whole deal there. Again, I don't have time this morning to go through it, but the point is Jacob is believing that this is God's plan for these boys and and he's acting on it. That's why the writer says that he blessed the sons of Joseph and by faith, because he believed God for it. Um, and also it says here in verse 21, it says that he was worshiping, leaning on his staff. So as he blesses these guys, uh, it's, it's, many believe that Joseph's act in this was an act of worship. Think about it. When we walk by faith, We're trusting God. When we're trusting God, we're honoring him. When we're honoring him, God views that as an act of worship. And so it says that he's worshiping him, leaning on his staff. He is actually worshiping him through his obedience to do as God is directing with these two grandsons. Folks, I love worshiping the Lord in song. That's only a part of what it is to worship. When we worship, we worship with our lives. Uh, We had those lyrics this morning. I I don't just lift up my hands, Lord. I lift up my life. That's worship. And and when it says that, that, that Jacob was leaning on his staff, I can't help but think, and it doesn't say so in the text, but I can't help but think, going back to when he wrestled with the angel all night, said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And the angel touches his hip, totally dislocates it. And from that point forward, Jacob would walk with a limp and he would lean on his staff. I can't help but think that as the writer here reminds us that he's leaning on his staff, that he's looking back to that point where his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, from conniver to governed by God. And he walked by faith and he was more reliant on God after that, I believe, than he ever was beforehand because he was known for relying on his own stuff. So we look at that, uh, it's just marvelous to think about what happened with Jacob in this and how Jacob again he's at he's on his deathbed but he's looking forward. He's wanted to make sure that these boys, now these grandsons who's just kind of adopted to be his sons, that they get that they're going to be carrying the covenant forward that God gave to Abraham, that God gave to his grandfather. And now these are great grandsons, but they, he wants to be sure that they understand the weight of responsibility of making sure that here he is in Egypt, they're all in Egypt, this is not your home. There is a homeland, but it's not here. It would be 400 years before they would leave Egypt, but that didn't stop Jacob from acting and walking. Well, not walking, he's on his deathbed, but, but, walking by faith in that sense. You know what I mean? So it's very important that we understand why the writer's saying, by faith, he blessed Joseph's sons. Verse 22, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. And you read that, and on face value you go, what on earth is he talking about? <laughs> Take care of my bones? It's important. Uh, he's Now, Joseph is one of the most wonderful examples in all of God's word of a godly man. Uh, again, 12 chapters in Genesis devoted to this guy's life. I mean, sold out by his brothers and taken off to Egypt. I mean, there's, he's also a type for Christ. I mean, betrayed by his own. And, and carted off to the world. Egypt is a type for the world in the Old Testament. I mean, there's a, there are clear parallels between Joseph's life and the life of Christ. And he is clearly a type. I'm not going to go there, but then I'd bless you with that little information. But the point is, is that his life is exemplified by faith in God over and over and over again. Uh, he trusted God when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He trusted God when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and then falsely accused him, had him thrown into jail. He trusted God when he was in prison and God raised him up. He ended up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt. And and here these brothers that had so dishonored him, he put the blood on his coat of many colors, came back, showed it to his dad to and said, "Look, it's too bad. You know, I guess an animal got a hold of him and all that." And they and they they conned their dad. They lied to him. And here all these years later, here he is at the end of his life. And he's saying, look, uh, I want you to make sure that you take care of a couple of things for me. I, I, he, he makes mention of the departure of the children of Israel and giving instructions to, about his bones. And, and he, again, I just, I love his life. He, I think about, and I've quoted many times, is my back would be against the wall in some way uh, or somebody has done something, some godless thing or whatever uh i go back to genesis chapter 50 because joseph's brothers after all those years there's a famine in the land they come down to egypt they have no idea that their brother's like you know he's 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 like the the second his he, he <laughs> what would you look at it like um not you know what i just blanked on a word at any rate they they have no idea that he is in such a place of prominence and power and and so they come down and they're talking to him and they don't even know they're talking to their brother and he reveals himself to them and they're just a little bit, no, they're a lot, uh, kind of sideways about the whole thing because it's like, oh, we're dead. He, he could, And all he has to do is speak a word and we're done. And Joseph is gracious to them. I love in Genesis 50, he says, you meant it for evil against me. But God worked it for good. Why? To bring many souls alive. Joseph is remembering the covenant. He's remembering that God is gonna use these brothers, He's gonna do things with them, and that at some point they're gonna go back into the land. So, uh, looking at that, he made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. He knows God's promises are rooted in Canaan. They're not rooted in Egypt. And he speaks of a future exodus from there. He knows that when God said to his great-grandfather that I'm going to give you a land, that it's not Egypt. He knows that it's in Canaan. He knows that that's their destination. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. He doesn't understand the details and all of that. But he simply trusts God. He walks by faith. At the end of his life, he says, I want you guys to understand, this is not your home. This is not your homeland. This is not where you're going to virtually end up in the big picture. So though he had spent his life in Egypt, he still believed in the promises of God. And things started well for Israel there. You know, they, they were in a fertile valley. They, they had favor from Pharaoh. Things were They had abundance and things were good. And, and they did what God had told them to do, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And they filled it to where, you know, that famous verse there in Genesis, that a Pharaoh was raised up that knew not Joseph. And things started to go badly for them. But Joseph had saved the Egyptians from a horrible drought. That's how he got to this place of power. How he got to prime minister. That's the word I was looking for back there. At any rate, how it was like the equivalent of the prime minister. There's Pharaoh and then, then there's Joseph. I mean, he was a big deal there. Uh, and. He had given, interpreted this dream for Pharaoh. And then further, he showed them how to bank their crops and and to save them up so that when the famine hit, they had plenty. And I mean, that just put him in the front seat with Pharaoh. I mean, he was so impressed. And so here he is, though. He still, even with all of that, says, no, it's not here. It's not Egypt. It's Canaan. And he wants to make sure that his descendants know where they're supposed to end up. So that's when he talks about the departure of the children of Israel, that's what the writer is referencing when he's talking about that here in Hebrews 11. The second thing is he he says he gave instructions concerning his bones. And again, that's the part. I remember being a young Christian and reading that and thinking, that sounds weird. That sounds ghoulish. You know, it's like, what, bones? What do you mean Instructions for my bones. The point is, Joseph did not want his bones left in Egypt. He did, he knew that Canaan was the place. Do not leave my bones. Do not let the Egyptians do with my body what they like to do. He was a powerful and prominent guy. The Egyptians were building these elaborate burial monuments. We call them pyramids during that time. And Joseph, if if he had not have made this uh, request of his descendants of the people that he was with, they'd have done one for him. And he did not want to be identified that way. He wanted to be identified as the children of Israel that were headed back to Canaan, even though it would not happen in his lifetime. And he knew it. And it didn't stop him from walking by faith. And so he's he's being very clear. He says, no, he's believing God and God has intended his people to be in Canaan. Uh, It had already been 200 years since Abraham's promise had been made or since God's promise to Abraham had been made. And it would be another several hundred years before it would be fulfilled. Faith drove Joseph to tell his brothers knowing that he wouldn't live to see it. He says, after I die, make sure you carry my bones to the land that God promised to us. That's what the, the writer intends here. So what do we take away from these three guys, the three things here that we look at? The first is it's important to all of us that we understand that our perspective changes as we near the end of life. Some of us don't get noticed. Many of us do. These three men's perspective changed. There was a sense of urgency in their dealing with their descendants as to what God's plan was. I know uh, for many people, if you have unbelieving children, I know that's a burden. I've spoken with you about it, uh, unbelieving children or grandchildren. And it's important that we just continue to pour into them and to say, look, there is a greater way to live. There is a greater reality than this earth. This is like Egypt. This and Canaan is out there. Yeah, not the physical Canaan that Israel inherited, but again, the Old Testament is it's like a whole big huge parable and it points to the fact that there's a greater reality. We live our lives based on the fact that there's a greater reality and we put hope in that. Just like Mary Susan when she was on her deathbed and her mama was crying and telling me, Mom, don't worry. I, I, I've handled that. I've taken care of that. I know where I'm headed. And I understand that Jesus is the reason I'm headed there. Great comfort in that. Great pain, but great comfort as well. So it's important to all of us as we grow older. And, and if you're younger here this morning, it's not that this isn't for you put it in your spiritual bank account, draw it out when you're older because you will be. (laughs) Ask any of us. The second thing is most of us will not experience the promises of God relating to eternity and to heaven and all that. We're we're not going to experience that until we cross over. So it behooves us to walk by faith. And and that's what the writer is wanting to do with the first century Christians. He's saying, look, I know what you've got now. I know that it's a mess out there. I know that your life is hurting. I know you've got trials. I know that you're just bleeding out in ways. I know that you miss your family or you miss your home or you miss your livelihood. All of these things that were being taken away that they're suffering loss of. But there's a greater reality. His name is Jesus. He went to a cross. He died in your place. And he rose from the dead that he could give you Life. There is nothing on this earth that compares, folks. Nothing. And when we live with that perspective, guess what happens? We begin to come into the ability to handle the problems, the trials, the difficulties that this life serves up, because it's full of them. That's what the writers wanted to convey to them. That's what I see is God's will for us to pull out of this. That's why I stopped on going 11 verses and thought, you know what, these three verses are adequate because these three men at the end of their life had some significant things to say and there's some great application for you and I. The last is this is a strong encouragement that when we close our eyes on this side that we'll immediately be in God's presence and we'll be aware of the utter fulfillment of all that we've hoped for we hope now. Faith is the evidence of the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or conviction of things not seen. We hope for now, but then face to face, that's what the Bible says. And I close with a, a passage in Job. Uh, Job, remember, Job is perhaps the oldest book in the Bible. Uh, it, it was time wise, it was not. It wasn't like back near Adam. I'm talking about when it was written, when Job wrote it down. It was probably written, possibly written during the time of the patriarchs, but it was the first book written that it was actually put down. And Job has this to say. He says, oh, that my words were written. In Job 19, verses 23 through 27, if you're a note taker, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And they were that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Prophetic. After my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And folks, As I look at passages like this, how my heart yearns within me for the ultimate fulfillment of all that we have in Christ. As we struggle through, as we sometimes draw close, sometimes drift further away, as we go through that, it's not about our... Difficulties. It's not about our faithlessness. It's about His faithfulness. It's about He is the one who is faithful in our lives and He will do it. He simply wants to keep us close, to draw us close, to keep us close because He wants us to have as easy a ride in this life as we can. And when we get out there binging along trying to live it for ourselves, it doesn't work. It gets jammed up. We end up at the effect of our circumstances rather than living well within them. That's what I see here, uh, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen because he is the object of our faith. He is the one with whom we have to do. What great news for us through these three men to see they're at the end of their life, uh, they're looking forward because faith looks forward. Let's pray. Father, oh, just so so little time with these things and yet uh, we just trust it's adequate.